Morning. Well, we often talk about stories where things go over budget, they cost way more than we were first told, particularly as taxpayers when we are picking up the tab. So it is nice for a change to look at a story or hear a story that has to do with cost savings and an innovative way to find a cheaper way to do something that is a necessity. That is exactly what happened with BC Transit scoring a bunch of used fare boxes, fare boxes that weren't being used in California. And joining me on the line to talk about how this all unfolded is Jonathan Dyke, who is the communications manager with BC Transit. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jill. So how did this first go about? I would imagine we, you knew or people that were in that particular job knew that uh, Transit needed some new fare boxes. How did we go from that to getting these fare boxes in California? Well, it actually started as a bit of a joke, Jill. Uh, so what happened is uh, our, our team was discussing uh, what we were going to do as we are in the process of transitioning uh, to a uh, advanced fare technology. So we're looking at uh, whether we're going to bring in a, a new technology where you bring your ticket on your phone and you scan your phone when you get on the bus and, uh, and you can have an account that you reload in that and uh, to, to tap and debit card, uh, tapping your debit and credit cards. And so we're bringing that new technology in, and, but the challenge is that we have to keep our, our current fare box technology up and running until that new fare technology uh, is in place. And so we were talking about it, and uh, it, it was going to cost us $13,000 per fare box to actually replace the fare boxes that are damaged right now. And that's an important thing for us, because if we don't have fare coming to the fare box, then we, we're not collecting money. If the fare box isn't working, we can't, uh, can't ask customers to pay. And we use uh, monthly passes that you scan and pro passes and that type of technology right now. And so we, we were talking about it around, uh, around BC Transit, and it came up as kind of a joke about, well, why don't we check online and see what might be available out there? Maybe there's something on eBay or somewhere else. And it was actually one of our mechanics that uh, that came to uh, to our, our uh, director of fleet services and said, "Hey, I actually found on a group in California that this person has a bunch of uh, fare boxes that are the same model as ours. Maybe they'd be willing to sell it." So we got in contact with that person. Uh, turns out that this person is a collector of buses for movie sets and commercials, and they were uh, willing to sell their fare boxes. And they also said, well, I know a couple other people in the area that, uh, that might have fare boxes for sale. Maybe you want to get in touch with them. And so we, we did that. We got in touch with those folks. And uh, they, they ended up having 28 in total between the three people that we bought from. And the other person that we bought from was actually a retired bus driver that was collecting them for his own purposes. So uh, loaded up and went down to California and rented a U-Haul and, uh, and ended up uh, going around collecting the 28 fare boxes. Uh, and uh, and brought them up here, and I said originally that uh, fare boxes cost thirteen thousand dollars all in to get, and uh, the solution cost us twenty five hundred dollars per fare box all in for twenty eight of them uh, each. So uh, it was a cost savings of around three hundred thousand dollars. Which, as you said, when we're your tax, uh, when you're a government agency, you really want to respect the taxpayer dollar. We're transitioning to a new technology, and so this was a perfect solution for us. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a pretty big savings. Uh, it's a, it is a big savings. I mean, I think that uh, in anybody's life, uh, three hundred thousand dollars is a is a lot of money, and that's no different as a government organization. And as you are saying, Jill, we want to be respectful of taxpayer dollars. 
we have this project that we're working on right now to move to a new fare technology. And so we don't want to be uh, be spending a whole ton of money on uh, on what we consider uh, more outdated type technology that will be coming out in the coming years. And any concerns with the fare boxes being used in that if they wouldn't be as reliable or there might be more issues with them breaking down? So our team went and uh, looked at them and, and thought, yes, these ones will, will work for us. And actually, uh, the, the person who does the uh, movie sets uh, had some spare parts for these fare boxes, too. And so he was able to give us those spare parts, too. And so that's going to help us with these fare boxes and other fare boxes. So it actually turned out better. I mean, I think that it's no different than when you, you buy anything used. I mean, people use different systems all, all the time now. And uh, you have to make sure that you're inspecting it and that you're uh, getting a quality product. But at the end of the day, uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of older fare boxes in our in our fleet right now. And uh, and so they work just fine and they're they're meeting our purposes. And these particular fare boxes, and I know the shift is to uh, to really change things in the next few years, but these particular ones, it's not as though people will not be able to use cash or that'll change anything, or will it change anything for the actual transit rider? So these fare boxes that we bought down in California are the exact same ones that uh, we have on our buses across the province outside the lower mainland today. Um, the transition to an advanced fare technology, we will still have cash options and select uh, paper ticket options. Uh, because we know that that's important for for people that uh, might need those options that are riding the bus. So this is uh, this project is about looking at how we can deliver uh, one of the top things that customers ask us for, which is uh, new ways to pay and not having to go to a, a convenience store to buy a ticket. Uh, and so that's what this is really about: is giving customers more options, similar to when we implemented the uh, the next ride technology, which was. Number one on customers' list is where is my bus and when can I see it in real time? This is uh, this is definitely up there in the list of how can I pay differently for how I can get on the bus in the future. Hmm. Uh, it seems like the only person in this scenario who might not be pleased with how things have unfolded or the only the only party uh, would be the company that makes the fare boxes then likes to sell them brand new. I think that when you're when you're working with any vendor and uh, and anywhere. Uh, I mean, they, they sell their product and uh, we work closely with all of our vendors. And so, uh, but as a company and as somebody that is uh, is paid for largely by the taxpayer, we have to find innovative ways to deliver our business. And so uh, if we can find those innovative ways and uh, and find ways to uh, save money and put that into to other areas that can help our customers, I think that that, uh, that goes a long way to, to helping us advance the BC Transit brand. Well, it's a, it's a great story. And like you said, it kind of started out with a joke with people sitting around saying, hey, you know, maybe we should look at buying it on eBay. Uh, I'm intrigued as well when you mentioned that some of them came from a retired bus driver who was collecting fare boxes. Why, why would he be doing that? <laughs> well, I, I think that if you look around the transit uh, world, that there's people who are, are super fans of transit or that are, I mean, when drivers take their job very, very seriously, and that's uh, uh, no different than in Victoria or Vancouver or anywhere else across uh, British Columbia, I, I know that bus drivers take their job very seriously. And uh, there, there are people that collect different types of transit memorabilia. I mean, you're, you're moving people around uh, the community. Uh, people love old buses. Uh, they love old technology and seeing what it used to be like. So, People collect stuff for for their own uh, own purposes and just to to have as a, as memorabilia. And, uh, this person had decided that yeah, I, I think it's time for me to uh, uh, 
to to give these up for for whatever their their reason might be. And uh, so I think that it's it was a perfect match for us. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting some of the memorabilia that's around the province and around the world, Jill. Oh yeah, I'm picturing him driving his own vehicle around with the fare box <laughs> and, and making people pay before they get on to to get a lift somewhere. Yeah, 250 before you get in the car, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, do you think this could be used in other areas as well, in that we're talking fare boxes today? Could we be talking seats or other electronic components needed, other things? Because it's also got a great recycling component to it as well. Definitely, and that's a, that's a really good point on the recycling side. I think that it does show us that there there is a, a piece out there that uh, uh, of being able to use things that might be from other transit agencies or other uh, people that are out there. That I mean, the one person uh, has bought these buses for movies and commercials. So there, there are these opportunities out there. So uh, just being open to that idea. I mean, we, we have been open to that as an organization. Uh, when, we, when we brought in the double-deckers in 2000, that was actually because a bus driver had done the research on why we should bring in double-deckers to Victoria, and, into, and we were the first transit agency in North America to do that. And this time it was a mechanic who so happened to see this, uh, this Facebook group and be part of it and say, hey, these are people that are worth, uh, worthwhile reaching out to. So it's, it's also about listening to your frontline staff and thinking about, well, what is the opportunity that, they, that is out there? Uh, to to save some money for the taxpayer and still deliver a, a great service for your customers. So uh, definitely, I think that there's opportunity in the future, but I think it just depends on what the product is and uh, and making sure that it works for you and uh, that there aren't any safety concerns with it. All right. Well, again, always great news when you can save some money and get exactly what you were looking for. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this this morning. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Jill. Time to talk a little federal politics and what things might look like in the future for the Conservative Party. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is political commentator and consultant Elise Mills. Elise, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. So great to chat with you about this. Now that, well, I I would say the dust has kind of settled, but perhaps not completely. Where do you think think things stand now that uh, we know Andrew Scheer is leaving as leader? A lot of speculation on who the next leader will be. What do you think the direction of the party needs to be? Well, I'm not so sure the dust has settled because there's members like myself that don't understand how caucus uh, came to a quote-unquote unanimous decision to let Mr. Scheer maintain the leadership till April. That flies in the face of what we've done traditionally. Um, And I don't think the membership and people like myself really understand how you can do that. I think you need to have an interim leader in there to be able to make this as as a clean of a process as possible. So I suspect there'll be a few more dust ups along the way because, you know, and I, and I, I like Andrew and his wife, Jill very much. They're probably some of the nicest people I've ever met in politics. This is a guy you would want to have live next door to you. Um, and he's, you know, just a great community guy, but nonetheless, I don't know if I can rally around how we're going to have a positive outcome if he stays as leader till April. I think that's the first thing that I'm circling on, Jill. All right. Who would you say then, would you have any ideas on if uh, there was to be an interim leader now, who that would be? I, there's so many good choices. I mean, <clears throat> I, these would be names that I would have thought would be a great deputy leader, although the choice was to go with Leona Elslev. 
but I do think there's some great names there, women specifically. We have we have an abundance of choices of, of great female leaders. Uh, if Candace Bergen didn't want to run for leader, uh, because obviously we have that clause that if you are an interim leader, you cannot seek the leadership, she would be a fantastic uh, interim leader. Uh, if Michelle Rempel Garner did not want to be leader, she's another good choice. Um, you know, it's it's disappointing that Lisa Raitt's not around this time, and she doesn't see that this is her time to run for leader, because I think this probably is the time for her to run as leader. Uh, so, yeah, those would be a few of the names. There's Pierre Polyev, uh, who I think has done an exceptional job rebranding his image and also being able to separate himself from the Harper years, and he's demonstrated his legislative might uh, in, in question period, as all of those other uh, people have as well. And talk a bit, if you can, about how this all went down. It seems like the issue of the payment for the difference for Shear's kids to go to the private school after they moved to Ottawa, uh, was that a leak made to the media? Was that a leak to throw him under the bus to get him out? I would suspect so. I, the problem that I had with the entire you know month of November was that I was assured by people that were in that advisory circle talking to Andrew that we were not going to go to April for a leadership review with Andrew Shear. that they had been working with him for what we would call a sort of a gracious exit, that he didn't, his heart really wasn't in it anyway. Um, and I felt relieved by that because uh, I don't want Andrew's reputation completely decimated. Uh, he has a lot to offer us in the party, has a lot to offer his constituents. Um, but as the weeks went on, Jill, and we got into the first part of December, I began to wonder if both parties really understood the terms of that agreement and when was he going to do this. So I was sort of circling the first week of January. I think there were there's obviously very, people that are far more aggressive in wanting him out than myself. I felt Western... Uh, uh, conservatives, not because Andrew's from the West necessarily, but because we have a little bit of a different approach to some of this. Uh, we're we're even equally as frustrated and uh, concerned, but we're not demonstrating the same uh, the same concerns publicly or or using those those more aggressive mechanisms to push him out. And I think this really comes down to some of the Toronto Tories, and and they felt that the time was now, and that if we were to gonna if we were going to have a leadership say in at the april convention which i don't think is clear it was time for him to go the real concern here jill is who is going to replace andrew Shear if though if some of the names from the private sector that i have spoken to and or uh their people have approached me or my colleagues are interested in doing this and i think they would these these people that i've spoken to are exceptionally good choices they need that time to be able to build that constituency because they're not in caucus. I also think then there's issues if you are in caucus, you need time to, time to organize. We don't even know what the rules of engagement were. So just sort of pulling Andrew out like that and embarrassing him on the way out. And by the way, I, I totally 100% disagree with the choice to fund his uh, kids' education. Uh, it's a precedent. But there is no precedent in the party for that. Uh, this is not a traditional stipend that we would say we saw, say, with Mosa Hoda in British Columbia. We saw with Christy Clark. That's not it's just not the same. All right. Uh, when you talk about people in the private sector, then uh, do, uh, are there names you can put out there? No, that we're, I, we're, we're not even close to that yet. I think these were people that ha- were very interested in 2016, might have been interested uh, for the leadership of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario 
and or the BC Liberal leadership at certain times. Uh, but, you know, that you always know what that time is. You always know if it feels good, if the membership's going to go with you, if, if, the, if the political culture's on your side or the trend is on your side. And I think, you know, we've, we've had enough of uh, laissez-faire politicians or the retail politicians. I mean, the idea of policy, real deep policy conversation in both Canada and the United States seems to be lost um, on our leaderships. I like to think that Trudeau and Donald Trump are the flip side of uh, of the same coin in the sense it's very superficial and, and reactive versus, you know, 50,000 feet up. And I think it might be that the conservative membership out of all the, the first one out of all the parties is ready for a visionary and a thought leader. And so I've said to uh, colleagues and I've said on air before, I don't care if it's a man or a woman, gay or straight, from Toronto or from the West, it does not matter. They must speak French and they must demonstrate a vision and they must have an aspirational vision and we must be building for 2030. I think my biggest issue, Jill, with the Conservative Party in the last year and a half is that what we've been putting out there is less uh, modern, and I hate to use the word progressive because a certain political party has taken hold of that moniker, but a less progressive vision than even 2015 or 2011 under Stephen Harper. And we seem to be reaching backwards for answers. And that's, a, that's actually more of a concern as to the health of the party than even the leadership. So what was the demise, do you think, of Andrew Scheer? Because the private schooling thing, and I, and I agree with you, and I think a lot of people will agree, that's it's not okay, but it's, it shouldn't have been what brought him down. What was it that, that led to him losing the election, that, that led to his demise? Uh, starting backwards, the private school thing, the way that we look at it is that that essentially is taxpayers' dollars, right? Because you get a tax credit for it. So essentially the public sector is providing that service, and that really irks conservatives. And then going backwards, it wasn't just the election campaign, although I'd say by week two or three, most people that we would call spinners like myself uh, attending those meetings were, were beginning to feel more disenchanted uh, because they're, they're, they weren't doing some of the things that we had expected them to do. And there's a a litany of things there. But then after that, he's circling on, um, we, we can't get him out of the uh, the pride conversation and gay marriage conversation. He's not transparent. It's quite opaque. And then the second thing for me and a lot of Western conservatives like myself was he's talking about the carbon tax, how he's battling this for the base. Nobody cares about a carbon tax if they don't have a job. And we lost 51,000 resource workers. We have one of the most, I think, uh, dangerous strikes in forestry happening right now. Mining is being DOA in this province for the last three to five years. Uh, the oil, I can't transition forestry workers to oil and gas because I don't have an oil and gas sector and I would have done that in the last stop with lumber. There's all these issues. Those are your bases, Andrew. Where are you? And I, and then Ontario, on the flip side, had other issues. They needed him to answer the social question. They needed to see the gap between church and state. Uh, they needed to have the, sol- the, the, the questions around the social economy answered. And so, it, you know, Leaders don't go by one shot. They go, it's death by a thousand cuts. And then I think the whole issue around the school fees was the icing on the cake because that really demonstrates uh, how he, his fiscal conservatism in the true ideology or the true, the true, the true sense of, of being a ideological conservative, which, as you know, Jill, is, is focused primarily in the fiscal and economics of, of, our, of our country. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I know we will talk about this again. Elise, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming on the show.
Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas if we don't chat before then. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Okay. Merry Christmas. Well, a couple of days ago, Richard Stewart, who is the mayor of Coquitlam, put a post on Facebook talking about some people in the community who needed a little bit of help. And I saw it when the post went up, wanted to talk to the mayor about this. But since that happened, the response has been pretty, uh, pretty incredible. And Richard Stewart joins me on the line now. Mayor Stewart, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Joe. Uh, you put this post up on December 13th, around 8.30 in the morning. What has happened since then? Well, that was a busy day for me. I had meetings scheduled all day, which was unfortunate because everybody, suddenly I, my inbox was uh, absolutely inundated with, um, can I help? We can help, all that kind of thing. We had people dropping by City Hall, um, a former principal, actually someone who was a principal of one of my kids' elementary schools, <laughs> Um, dropped by. She's retired, and and they had purchased some of the elements for the for the the mom who simply didn't have the resources this Christmas to get new shoes for her her son. Uh, the old shoes were had holes in them. Just uh, suddenly, the we had bags and bags of goods. We had uh, more than a thousand dollars of gift cards uh, for some of these families. It was uh, incre- I was blown away by the generosity. And the, the the sense that the community really needed to come together and try to make Christmas good, not just for our own families, but for, for some who are struggling. Uh, do you get the sense, too, and in, in the post you talk about the, the families in particular that you were asking for donations and, like you said, shoes and toys in some cases, and, and but essentials for, for a lot of the, the items. Uh, you talked about uh, this is a family, a mom who had fled Syria. How big is the need, or do you get a sense of how big the need is, not only from people who maybe are, are new to Coquitlam, but people in the community? Well, I wouldn't say it's enormous. There are lots of countries where, you know, they have one-third of their population is refugees from an adjacent country at war. Uh, in Canada, we've taken refugees, but a relative mo- modest uh, number. And But those ones that do get here, uh, many of them have lost everything they had. Uh, and they're, you know, they're just, this is in many cases the first time they've been in a home since, um, since the war broke out, uh, you know, they've lived in refugee situations, refugee camps. And the most recent one that we've accepted here in Coquitlam uh, is a refugee camp. Uh, spent, uh, I believe, seven years in a refugee camp situation in Jordan, um, where you're essentially living in a tent. Um, and the children uh, start at age nine, so that youngest child has known no apartment in his life. <laughs> Uh, can remember none of that. And uh, it's just amazing watching the eyes. Yesterday I got to deliver some of the donated, in that case, a donated freezer and a donated, well, something as simple as a package of crayons, um, a, a big box of way, an elaborate package of crayons and some paper, and the eyes lit up and the mom's eyes had tears in them. They were just uh, like, how could life have changed so dramatically for them? with something something as simple as a package of crayons. And it goes from crayons to, uh, I know you'd put the call out as well, uh, somebody donated a washer-dryer. So there was a, the need then, does somebody have a truck to help deliver the washer-dryer? I mean, it really it really goes to the help is all out there. It's just a matter of, of getting to people, I imagine, or making sure people know what they can do. Well, that's the part that always amazes me is the, if there's some specific need, uh, I'll have people come up and say, well, if, you know, is, is there someone who needs something specifically, um, uh, and I'll go buy it. And, 
and it's just wonderful seeing that that generosity that, that play out and it's typically for something that is is needed it's not these extras like the box of crayons but it's something that is truly needed and uh, and those uh, the, the the community is is there trying to help i think we need to find ways to reach out to them to let them know where the need is and uh, whether it's through social media or whatever and offer them the opportunity to put a smile and face smile on the child's face and tears in mom's eyes is there a concern at all that we tend to see more of this type of giving and community coming together around the holidays is there a concern that that it falls off the radar come january february well, it's always a concern because we, we, I, I'm with a group in the Tri-Cities called Tri-Cities Friends of Refugees, and uh, we've been welcoming newcomers, uh, both traditional refugees and sometimes that, that single mom that's fleeing a situation and has become a refugee of her own, of a different definition. Um, and we, of course, do that throughout the year. But every time we put out a call, it doesn't matter if it's close to Christmas, Christmas perhaps makes a bigger stir, but we'll get people with that pickup truck to pick up the uh, the washer-dryer, and we'll get uh, donations of, you know, people are upgrading their appliances or such. We've been renovating some derelict townhouse units in, in Coquitlam, but they were, you know, these are townhouse units where the non-profit can't actually afford to, to fix them up. They've been so badly damaged, and some church groups would get involved, and, and every time we've put out the call, we've had a church group ready there, to, you know, with tools in hand and volunteer labor and donated materials and uh, a new family can can come in and it really is an opportunity I think to bring community in and everybody wins the, the community smiles uh, they feel great about it the family of course and and generally our uh, the, our population is is a very generous population I think here in Metro Vancouver uh, but we have to be asked sometimes and uh, happy to put the question out. Well, and is that, that was uh, my next question. What, what is the key to doing that? Because we often hear about people being isolated and lonely and that, that it can be Vancouver itself can be a cold city. What's the key to making stuff like this happen? Oh my goodness. I wish I knew. Um, you know, I, the, the post I made on Friday morning was about five different families that just for whatever reason that, 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 uh, that this week had been, we had been Coming into contact with these these families, uh, um, some of whom hadn't hadn't been planned. I mean, the, the refugee family we knew we knew they were coming, uh, but um, you know when you when you found, find this family that that clearly just needs some help, um, uh, how do you connect them with people who really want to help? Um, I actually put a GoFundMe on on my Facebook this morning just so that we would be able to have those incidentals because you're, you're right. Uh, sometimes you don't have, um, you can't line up the donor with the family and there's reasons of privacy and uh, uh, sometimes reasons of urgency. Um, but there there are so many people out there that, that really want to help, they, they, but they need a specific request quite often and I understand that completely. Uh, when we've made a specific request, we almost always have it fulfilled. All right. Uh, we've only got about 30 seconds. Are you still asking people for help or donations? Well, actually, yesterday, uh, another family came to our attention, partly through that, that process. So, yes, there's, if you go to my Facebook page or, or Tri-Cities Friends of Refugees, you'll, you'll see some of the, 
the work that uh, gets done in our community, and every other community has the same, and so we'd we'd urge people just to seek out uh, the kinds of help that they can be to families uh, at a time like this when, or year-round, families can struggle. All right. Well, it's great to see the response. And again, people can uh, see it on Facebook or on that page that you mentioned, uh, the uh, Tri-City Friends of Refugees. Uh, Mayor Stewart, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Keith Baldry over at the legislature with Global BC. Good morning to you. Morning, Jill. A few things to talk about. Let's start with federal politics. Uh, Andrew Scheer, as we know, leaving the leadership. A bit of uh, backlash, I suppose, or a difference of opinion on whether or not he should be staying till April. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are you hearing on, on the future of the Conservative Party? Well, you know, they're at a crossroads. Um, they've got a make-or-break moment here. Uh, leadership conventions can be great wonders for breathing new life into a party, but they can also be um, deal wreckers. And so the Conservatives have to be careful. They don't go through a really divisive battle uh, to replace Mr. Scheer. And there's every every sign that that's exactly what they're going to go through, but that the, the lines are drawn. They have to be careful of uh, competing ideological interests. You've got social conservatives who back Mr. Scheer. They play a prominent role in the party. That is not the way to get elected to a government. Uh, they need to be, I think, a, a broader, bigger tent party than they are right now, and that's a challenge for them to head into a leadership race where something like that can be uh, a hard thing to um, to actually fulfill. So it's, uh, you know, but there's also an opportunity to rebrand the party uh, along more favorable, favorable lines with the general public and voting public than it was in the last general election. So... Uh, they've got some challenges ahead, but it's a, it's an opportunity for the party, but it's also a, a, a dangerous one for the party. And implications here in B.C., uh, I mean, we've had conservative leaders from the West, not from B.C., obviously, but more Western leaders. Do you think there are implications, depending on, on which direction it goes, for B.C. in particular? Well, you know, B.C.'s got a healthy representation on the House of Commons with conservatives. We do have a strong conservative uh, link in uh, a number of uh, ridings in BC uh, along geographical lines. So I'm not sure who the next leader is is going to have that much of an impact on BC. I think it's the challenge for the Conservatives is on a much broader national scale. They cannot be confined to just being a Western rump party. They've got to reach into the East. They've got to, you know, like it or not, uh, you've got to have a leader. <coughs> excuse me, a leader that speaks both official languages. You've got to have a leader that that appeals to all areas of the country, not just the West. If they fall into the Western alienation trap, that's going to narrow the party's chances with the electorate come the next election. So again, they've got a. They're potentially staring at a pretty, pretty uh, volatile minefield here, and they have to be careful how they step because if they fall into pigeonhole traps of just the West and the Western alienation group. That is not going to get it done when it comes to winning a federal election. All right. Uh, interesting uh, things to think about uh, as we see how that unfolds. Uh, let's look more specifically at B.C. and some of the issues uh, facing uh, politicians in B.C. Uh, Claire Trevena uh, got a bit of a, a frosty reception, you could say, when yes. uh, speaking, uh, r- reminding her of what's happening in parts of the province, maybe parts that unless you're living in those uh, more rural parts of B.C., outside of Metro Vancouver, you're not thinking about it as much. Uh, but forestry workers certainly having a tough go of it. 
Yeah, this is this is flying under the radar screen in Metro Vancouver, but this is a huge issue, Jill. Uh, the forestry industry is in crisis. Uh, there are mill closures throughout the interior. Uh, there are thousands of people out of work. And in these small towns where the mill is the chief employer, it has the literal trickle-down effect where the mill uh, curtails shifts or shuts down completely. Well, that means the, ca- the local cafe uh, curtails shifts or shut down completely. The pub closes, the grocery store. It just goes works its way through the local economy. So it's devastating for some of these small towns. Uh, on northern Vancouver Island, which is a, a slightly different problem. You've got a Western Forest Products mill that is now entering a six-month of, of behind a picket line. Can you imagine going six months without a, a paycheck? I don't think very many people listening to this program right now could go six months without a paycheck. But that's exactly what's been going through the thousand, a couple thousand workers in Western Forest Products in North Vancouver Island. That's why Claire Trevena got a rough ride when she met with many of these people who are frustrated and angry that there's no end in sight. There was supposed to be John Horgan, the premier, in year-end interviews uh, with reporters, said he wanted this thing to end this weekend. Well, there's not even any talks this weekend. The mediator, Vince Reddy, uh, is not available this weekend. They're going to meet again on Monday. Perhaps there's going to be a settlement, but my information is that two sides are still very far apart. The forest industry is essentially broken in this province. Uh, there's not enough fiber. There's not enough logs to mill, basically, and because of the, the what happened with the pine, the mountain pine beetle, it just ravaged so much timber. You throw in the forest fires from a couple of years ago that ravaged so much timber. There's just not enough supply. You can't really, the government argues it can't really monkey with the stumpage system, uh, stumpage rates, because that would trigger even more of a reaction from the United States in terms of the, soft, the ongoing, never-ending softwood lumber dispute. So it's a, it's a real crisis, and there's, <clears throat> there's no easy answer to this. And that's why you've got the anger spilling over in North Vancouver Island that Claire Trevena uh, witnessed firsthand. And that's why the NDP has to be a little nervous now. That riding that Claire Trevena represents has been fairly safe for her for a dozen years or so. And now you have to question whether the NDP can hang on to that seat come the next election. And because the, the electoral map is so tight, Jill, every riding is precious to both parties. And literally the transfer of one riding from one party to another can literally determine who forms the next government. That's how acute uh, that situation is and how deep that crisis is. Oh, absolutely. Although I would think, too, like you said, it's kind of flown under the radar for Metro Vancouver and for the more uh, southern uh, urban areas. But if you're a forestry worker, you're not looking at the ridings and looking at the politics of the next election. You're looking at at this coming Christmas and your next paycheck, paycheck when and if it's coming. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people down in their luck coming into this Christmas season because of if you work in the forestry uh, industry, I think there's something like potentially 6,000 people affected here by either outright layoffs or curtailment of shifts. I mean, who wants to go without a paycheck before Christmas? But that's the reality that so many forestry workers are facing uh, because of the the downsize in the industry. A number of mills are closing forever. Uh, It's a transformation. Uh, These mills will not reopen. The days of just giant mills milling two-by-four seem to be drawing to a close. Uh, John Horgan and the NDP keep talking about the need to shift to what's called value-added products, which means not just a two-by-four, but a two-by-four plus-plus, you know, laminated timber, 
specialized products. The problem with that is while there's a market for those types of things, that the transition is long in coming. You just don't turn a mill overnight into a boutique mill that turns out laminated timber. It takes a, a few years, and the transition is going to be rough. It's going to be rocky. And a lot of people are going to go without paychecks, not just this Christmas, probably next Christmas as well. So it's it's a crisis that's out there beyond Metro Vancouver. You don't hear about people talking about it in the pubs in Kitsilano or Coquitlam, but it's a very real thing uh, once you get north of Hope. Oh, and one of the issues, too, has been in Metro Vancouver. There has been a lot of talk. The government's been very focused on, on issues such as ride sharing, ride hailing. Uh, again, not issues if you're a forestry worker uh, out of work at this point. Uh, but we did see a bit of movement there. We saw a vote by the mayor's council uh, in response, uh, perhaps, to what they're hearing from the province. Yeah, they finally are getting their act together to sort of have a uniform system in Metro Vancouver when it comes to ride hailing. So not not this checkerboard hodgepodge series of business licenses and fees and different types of uh, obstacles that are put in the place of that industry. With one noticeable exception, Surrey, the second largest municipality, Doug McCallum there insists the people he talks to don't like ride hailing, even though surveys show quite the opposite. He's vowing not to let it into Surrey, so... It still has its challenges. I've long thought, Jill, that one of the reasons why it's taken so long for this to come to fruition is that the NDP government really, right hailing is not in its political DNA. When you look at right hailing, it's the ultimate free market industry. It's unregulated largely. It's low paying. It's non-union. It's, uh, you know, check any number of boxes that are not NDP. I mean, NDP is about well-paying jobs, unionized labor, and regulated industry, and that's their bread and butter, and that's not what right hailing is, which is one reason why I think the NDP has been very slow to embrace this uh, this industry, which John Horgan, by his own admission, calls a disruptive industry. It's not; it, it's, it's something that disrupts the local market, and that's what right hailing is going to going to do. The other thing to factor in here is the powerful taxi lobby in Burnaby, Surrey, South Vancouver. Uh, it's a it's a formidable political presence, and that's another thing that I think has been a, a an obstacle of getting this thing done. And again, Doug McCallum freely admits this. He wants to protect the the status quo of the existing Surrey tra- taxi industry, which is going to be threatened by ride hailing. So we're not there yet. Uh, John Horgan says we're we're going to be there by the new year or early new year. I'll believe it when I see it. I still think there's a long road to hoe here. Absolutely. All right, Keith, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. All right, Jill, take care. There is going to be a large gathering outside Surrey City Hall tomorrow in advance of a council meeting, in advance of the vote on the budget in front of council. And there will be a rally being called Stand Up Surrey taking part as well. And Mike Starchuk, who's a former firefighter and former councillor, joins me on the line to talk about this. Mike Starchuk, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill, and thank you. Uh, so what exactly is being planned for tomorrow? Well, Jill, uh, tomorrow uh, what we'll have is uh, Speak Up Surrey. We'll have a number of speakers uh, from various community groups uh, to talk about how the budget uh, that's being uh, going in front of council tomorrow night for final adoption uh, affects them. Uh, we'll have uh, people that represent youth, people that represent business, uh, people that represent public safety, uh, and then personal touches, uh, such as our final speaker for the evening, uh, which is Darlene Bennett. Uh, and Darlene Bennett, many people know, uh, is uh, the woman whose husband was gunned down in their driveway, in their family home. Uh, the case still very, very active. Uh, she's been quite vocal about this and about her concerns with the budget. Uh, would you say uh, you share her those concerns? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I mean, in, in Darlene's case, I mean, she has the, the tragedy of, of, of losing her husband and a father. 
uh, to her kids, and she has two young boys. And, you know, uh, public safety and policing is uh, first and foremost for most people that live in the city of Surrey. But she also looks at it a little differently with uh, with amenities. You know, the, the city is growing, uh, ten to 12,000 people a year, uh, and our public amenities, whether it's our ice rinks or pools, our rec centers, uh, parks, playgrounds, uh, those are the things that, that need to be in place for our youth uh, to keep them busy and active and contributing members of society. And this budget, quite frankly, Jill, doesn't do any of that. And the budget itself, then, do you think it's a done deal as far as the vote going ahead tomorrow night? Well... I mean, Jill, what I tell everybody that's out there, uh, if, if we don't do anything and we don't say anything and we don't speak up, uh, we know that it would be a complete done deal. But we're hoping that somebody inside of that room, uh, you know, there was four people that spoke vigorously, adamantly against uh, portions of the budget and did not support the budget, and five people were in support of it. And the, uh, the part that we're uh, the most um, curious about is why they put the budget forward. Because not one single person that voted in favor of the budget spoke in favor of it. They just simply put their hands up and and cast that ballot. And uh, we're hoping that they tell us why it's good. How many people are you expecting to take part in the rally? Yeah, that's uh, that's a $64,000 question. Uh, we really don't know. I mean, if I take a look at social media uh, and the tens of thousands of people uh, that are, are that are out there that are taking a look, that are making the views, that are making the comments, of which I'd say 99% of the people are, are supportive of what goes on there. I mean, I will not be surprised if there's 1,000 people, and I will not be surprised if there's 5,000 people that, that show up. Right. And and what do you take as kind of the bigger picture is we're talking about the budget. We're talking about a budget, as you mentioned, that has really divided people. But is it is it bigger than that in that the, it's not only a, a division over the budget itself that seems to have divided the community? Yeah, I, and we I think everybody knew that the, the issue about RCMP and municipal police force, I, I think everybody that was in touch with what was going on knew that it would be a polarizing issue. Uh, what I what I don't think anybody suspected or expected, rather, uh, is that there was this um, out of touch feeling uh, that we've got people that were making these decisions uh, in 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 isolation of what was there. The public consultations that were going on were were really one sided and didn't offer opinions to to the other people that were there. And when people take a look at uh, whether or not it's public safety or whether or not it's our our, our amenities. You know, we're seeing a budget that has a $129 million set aside just for one item while everything else is put on hold. And, you know, we've had the police chief, we've had the fire chief come before council and said that they need more staff. And they've been told, no, uh, do it with, with, uh, with what you have. And, you know, cities, the city's not getting any slower. Uh, it's getting busier. And that's just putting a bigger strain on those people that we have there in the public safety end of things. And that's before we start taking a look at the impact it's going to have on business, rising from the second lowest tax base to the sixth lowest. That's a huge jump in one year. Uh, and what about the timing of it as well, in that we heard earlier this month from the mayor that he anticipated the report being done by the task force that's being led, or the group that's being led by Wally Opal. He anticipated it would be done within days. Uh, Wally Opal came out saying, no, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. What about the timing of the budget being passed while that's still being done? Yeah, um, that's an excellent point, John. We are talking, I mean, Wally Opal was uh, on your program uh, the other day with Linda Steele, and he said two to three years. Uh, before we were talking about putting things into place. So why are we sending a, spending uh, 48 or $45 million uh, into, a, into a line item uh, for something that's not even going to exist? When we take a look at that amount of money that's going to be set aside in 2020, uh, that could take care of 
what Cloverdale's been after for you know ten years, and that was an ice rink. That that money could just simply just slide over there, and and we could worry about the other stuff uh, another time. So. Uh, Nobody really understands why, and uh, I think the bigger part, Jill, is the the report that uh, Wally's preparing. Uh, it'll have all the real facts. Uh, what was sent over to the government, it, it was showing less police than we have today. Uh, it was showing a, a, a shortage of uh, services in some of our more critical places, such as Sophie's Place, uh, where they were going to see the number of officers shrink. So it's it's a it's a work in progress, as Wally says. But I'm hoping at the end of that day that we get a real price tag as what it's going to really cost the citizens of Surrey. The rally, uh, again, uh, planned uh, for just, uh, it's going to conclude or before the meeting starts at 7. Is the plan that people from the rally will then go into council and or be there for the council meeting? Well, the the plan, Jill, would be to end the the rally at about 10 to 7. Uh, You know, do it in a peaceful and respectful way. Those people that want to go and sit in council chambers can enter into the building or, or sit inside of the foyer uh, and view it from the back part that's there. And hopefully what we'll get is when the budget comes forward, we'll have the ability to actually hear every single councillor and the mayor tell us why specifically uh, that they are voting in favour of spending uh, the, the next five years' worth of uh, taxation dollars in the manner that they're doing. Uh, the mayor has said before that he was uh, elected on this mandate, that he's following through on the mandate of the people who put him into the mayor's seat. What do you say to that? I think the best thing to say is that when he had that mandate, his first words were, it's only going to cost a little bit more. And then after he was elected, it was 5%. And then it went to 10%. And then it went to 15%. Now we're looking at $129 million as his estimate as to what it's going to cost. So when you're elected on, on saying that we've got, a, we've got a Cadillac, but we're making payments as if it was a Lamborghini, that's a, that's a big difference. When it goes from a, a white lie and losing its color, that's a big difference. We can't forget that this is the same mayor that said, I've got the money for SkyTrain. I can build it all, to, all the way to Langley, and he can't do it. You know, the same person that said there's 60 percent of the RCMP that will stay in Surrey. But yet we know that the RCMP have never been polled to find out whether they would stay with the municipal force. So I think it's all about, yeah, you had a mandate, but did we really explain what it was going to cost at the end of the day? Uh, what does it say to you uh, as a former councillor putting on, say, a political cap rather than a Surrey resident cap? What does it say to you about leadership and the direction of the council? Um, it, it's been very clear uh, to me and everybody else that, uh, that I speak with and, and the community groups that are out there. The one common thread is that they're out of touch. They create... Um, uh, their polls, they create their um, media releases, and, and they're not done with the with the thoughts and, and ideas that the rest of the people in city that the city have. When we take a look at the rideshare that came forward just recently, and uh, and he voted against it because he said that, you know that his residents don't want it, and every single poll that's been done after that just do not confirm that in any way, shape, or form. Um, so that just tells me and everybody else. He's just out of touch. All right. Uh, what time will people be gathering tomorrow? If people are hearing this and deciding they want to also take part, uh, what uh, what would be the start time? 
Yeah, we're going to start gathering at 6 o'clock. The, the first speaker will be just shortly after that. Uh, there's about a half a dozen people that will speak for about five minutes. Uh, we'll conclude everything, and uh, we will peacefully uh, walk over uh, right next door into uh, into chambers and um, and listen to see what they have. And everybody uh, that will be at that rally will be having their fingers crossed, hoping uh, that somebody will tap the brakes and say, let's, uh, let's take a sober second look. All right. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. I know there will be a, a lot of media there covering this as well, but thanks so much for giving us a, a preview and chatting today. Joe, you're more than welcome.